Somewhere within arm's reach is a Bible. Would you open it up with me to Revelation chapter 2? And you can find that on page 1029. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Again, that's page 1029. And I know you've got the text printed in your bulletin. There's something different about opening the scriptures and reading the words on the page. So we're going to be all over this text that we heard a few moments ago from Revelation chapter 2. And this is the third of seven letters. Uh, We've been spending some time asking ourselves this important question in the midst of a season where God might have appeared to be pruning us. 18 months later, it seems that God is blessing our congregation financially and numerically, and that may look successful on the outside, but what we long for truly is God to transform us on the inside. No matter what success may look like, who cares? But But can you say, as we're looking closely, Lord, what are you showing me here? Last week, we looked at Smyrna. God's calling us perhaps to live sacrificially. The week before that, the letter to Ephesians. God's asking us to rekindle our first love for him. What do we find here in the letter to Pergamon? We normally think of the words of Jesus in the Gospels during his teaching ministry, but what we find here in these seven letters are the only place where Jesus writes directly to churches to address the moment in time in which they're living, the church in Pergamon living in circumstances far more difficult than our own today. In a time of uncertainty. Throughout these seven letters, you might say that these words are to them, and yet they are for us. Also, living in times of uncertainty. As if God is saying, dear people of Pergamum, He's also saying at the same time, dear people of our father, Lutheran Church in Centennial, Colorado. And here, as Jesus speaks, we find two things. The things that he says, number one, and the gifts that he gives, number two. So that will be our focus over the next few minutes. First, the things that he says, and second, the gifts that he gives. And the things that he says are things that we need to hear. Some of them we want to hear, some of them we need to hear. And the things that he gives, his gifts, to sustain us and empower us to live as his people today. So first, to the things that he says. You got your Bible? I hope you do. Page 1029, let's look first at verse 12. And to the angel of the church. Remember, this angel, broadly speaking, is translated from Greek to be the word messenger, not the one with wings and the halo. This could have been written to the people through the messenger or the bishop, the pastor of the church in Pergamum. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. If you remember back, we looked at chapter one a few weeks ago, this two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. It cuts two ways, and Jesus has good things, good news, and bad news to say to the people in Pergamum. Verse 13, let's keep going. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, 
and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Anubis, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, this is actually good news here. Where Satan dwells, this is not his P.O. box, this is not his headquarters, this is the city of Pergamum. Here it is on the map. Pergamum is the northernmost of these seven cities where Jesus is writing, and seven is a number of completion. It's a universal number, so again, we can say that these words are for them, but they are also to us. Pergamum was the capital city of this area in this Roman province. You might say this is like what Denver is to Colorado. Pergamum at this time is several hundred thousand people in size. It's a center of cultural influence where the trends start. They flow out into the surrounding area. This might be like LA or New York City or the Denver Tech Center. (laughs) In fact, out back, is a hill 1,000 feet high. Uh, You might picture it 1,000 feet. Let's take, broadly speaking, uh, 10 feet to a floor. This is 100 floors, stories high. Imagine a building that big in the tech center in our backyard. And this hill, 100 stories high, is filled with temples and shrines. So among them, the temple to Zeus... The god of power, Roman name is Jupiter, the the temple to Dionysus, the god of pleasure. And at his temple, it was like Mardi Gras every single day. What happened there didn't just stay there. That was funnier than I thought it was going to be. I actually didn't. (laughs) I wasn't expecting a joke right there. (laughs) If you're at home, people are laughing right now. Apparently very funny. Uh, Asclepius the God of medicine, the God of healing. And so if you wanted relief from pain, you would go and worship at the temple there. Uh, The symbol for Asclepius is the symbol of a snake on a pole. This is really a reference back to Exodus and the biblical image that was co-opted by pagan people. The, The goddess Athena had her temple there too, the goddess of war. If you wanted wisdom or blessing in battle, you could go visit the temple of Athena. So if you were a Roman citizen living in Pergamum, you all you had to do was simply climb the hill, stop by the god of the temple whose help you needed. You could burn incense, pray a prayer, leave an offering, and the blessing of that god would be yours. You want better health, you want better marriage, you want wisdom, climb up. And that's why Jesus says this is where, this central place and this form of worship at this hill is where Satan dwells. And yet to the Christians in Pergamum, he says, but you, you've held fast to my name and you haven't mixed in with your devotion to me, idol worship and living some sort of spiritual compromise. Even in the days of Antipas, who was killed among you, we don't know much about who he was. He's not mentioned anywhere else in scripture, but here he perhaps was the bishop or the, the messenger of the church in Pergamum, or maybe he lived nearby, but he was certainly well known enough to know that they would remember the day that he died. It was probably about 96 AD when John is writing these things. Accounts from this era record for us that Antipas was martyred for his belief and his devotion to Jesus, his refusal to submit to Caesar, and was killed as he was burned alive on a brass statue in the shape of a bull. 
So Jesus says, in a culture that's very opposed to me, you, people of Pergamum, in the face of uncertainty and danger, you've held fast to my name, you didn't deny me, and I commend you. Jesus begins with the good news. But then things get dark pretty quick. The bad news comes next. (laughs) Let's look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. I'll pause right there. I wouldn't want to be in the crosshairs of Jesus here, would you? Uh, This is not good. What comes next? I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Now, let's pause right here. What is this business about Balaam and Balak and food and immorality and the Nicolaitans? Well, Rather than do a deep dive here, to do that, you've got to go to Cassie Schoenbeck's Bible class in the Fellowship Hall right after this. But, but what is all this about? The big idea here is that Jesus is upset that while some have held fast, others have compromised morally and spiritually. So this reference to Balaam and Balak, it's all the way back to the book of Numbers, chapter 22. If you're curious, the children of Israel, they've been waiting for God to bring them into the place that he's promised for them. They've been wandering around, and they're tired of waiting. They're tired of wandering, and they've held fast for a while, but finally, through this sorcerer named Balaam, they give in, and they compromise. Now, you might say, well, there goes the church, Another pastor I've heard before seems like we're always talking about sin and purity and can't we just get over that and move on to the things that lift us up? Uh, Let me just say, uh, if you've got a problem with that, you can take it up with Jesus because he's got something to say to us here. You might say, well, you know, sin and moral purity that's not really something that I struggle with. I've kind of got my act together, and when I confess my sin at the beginning of worship, I don't have a lot on my list. I'm pretty good most of the time. May I remind you that these are the words of Jesus to them, but once again, they are for us. Because no matter what we may say we believe about Jesus, that there are a number of things that we stack next to him in the center of our hearts that compete for our affection and attention and energy. And you can tell the things that you're stacking up in your heart next to Jesus, no matter what you may say you believe about him, if you look simply at the things that make you angry and the things that make you afraid. And when you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep, the places where your mind wanders, what are you stacking next to Jesus? Because what angers us and what, what, what we're afraid of and the things that keep us not up in the middle of the night, they can tell us so much about what else is really important to us besides Jesus and for that matter, who else is really important to us besides Jesus. We're all doing that. 
And that's just what happens on the inside. Because there are plenty of things that we need to admit that we do on the outside. Uh, there's something that I've heard somebody say to me, I don't know if I saw it in a commercial or was talking to a friend who said, was talking about uh, dieting or going to the gym or you know, taking better care of yourself. It's a very law-oriented, motivational thing that says, a month from now, you will have wished that you started today. <laughs> a month from now, you will have wished that you had started today. And if that's true about the good things we do, that we start. How much more true is that about the bad things that we do that we need to stop? I think it's really easy for us to rationalize and downplay our sin and think, well, this time it's not that big of a deal. It's not hurting anybody. Maybe nobody knows. But the trajectory of doing that once and then again is not a good one. Because a month from now, you will have wished that you stopped. When Peter says that our passions, our sinful desires, wage war against our souls, he's saying that, that our sinfulness and our selfishness over time left unattended, that it does damage to our heart. God gives a warning to Cain in Genesis chapter 4. He, he didn't wake up in the morning expecting to kill his brother, I'm sure. He, but he says to Cain as a warning, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. A month from now, you will have wished you stopped. A year from now, you will have wished you quit. Jesus has much to say. The sword that comes out of his mouth, it cuts two ways. It is, there's good news here and there is bad news. And we have to listen and pay attention to both. Not just listen to him on our terms, but hear him on his terms. The things he says, let's turn now to the gifts he gives. Verse 17. Got your Bible open still? You got to get out your Revelation decoder ring here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him, or to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, what does Jesus give here? A hidden manna, a white stone. What do these things mean, and what's with all the secrecy here? Jesus, the hidden manna. Let's start there first. Is a reference back to the Old Testament. You remember the children of Israel are waiting to move into the land that God had promised to them, and they're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, and God provides for them every single day gifts from heaven down above just enough to take care of what they needed for today food for that day till their head hit the pillow that night it would have taken a certain amount of trust to gather just as much as what you needed and to trust that you would have enough tomorrow after your supply for today ran out now jewish tradition tells us that uh, the manna that was stored in the ark of the covenant after the children of israel moved into jerusalem and the temple was built when the temple was attacked in 587 bc that jeremiah runs into the temple and he takes out with his friends the ark of the covenant and he hides it in a cave lost forever unless uh, Indiana Jones found it a few years ago. 
And according to Jewish tradition, the manna and the ark would be lost, hidden away until the new messianic age and the restoration of Israel. And for the people of Pergamum, this was God's provision for them in a spiritual wilderness, waiting for relief, for the return of the Messiah to come back once again, just as he has promised, and for you and for me today in our wandering and in our wilderness, in a few moments on this table, this altar right here will be the bread of God to take and eat and to take and drink the body and the blood of Jesus, visible yet veiled, his real presence that he provides for you today to sustain you and forgive you and to make you more in him than you could ever be on your own. To say to you in all of your wandering and in all of your waiting, you were never alone and I am always here with you. This is the gift. He provides for you everything you need for today in your presence. the hidden manna, and the white stone. And the white stone was used in Roman culture in a number of different ways at this time. Among them, at a trial, a Jewish judge would take a stone and throw it into a bowl. At the end of the trial, if the stone was black thrown into the bowl, it was a sign that the person was guilty, would be punished, and excluded from their community. This is why we get the term that we still use today, blackballed, If the stone was white, it was a sign that the person on trial was acquitted, that they were declared not guilty and innocent. And so when Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, I've got a white stone for you, he's writing to them, but for us. When Jesus looks at your past and the times that you've compromised and the moments where you've given in to temptation and the mistakes that you've made, all of them, he looks at you and says, innocent, not guilty. For all that you've done in your past, he forgives your past, he provides in your present. Well, for that matter, what about your future? And there was one other way that the stone would be used at this time. They would take a stone and they would cut it in half and on the flat surfaces that were on each side of the two halves of the stones, two people, each person, two friends, would write their name on the half of the stone and they would exchange the two stones and give them to their friend. And so if you had the name of your friend on a stone and you were in trouble, all you had to do was produce the stone with the name of your friend on it and your friend's allies would take you in and provide for you and protect you. My friends, you have one who has given you his name in baptism and who has taken you in to be his own forever. 
and your white stone, if you were living that day, only your stone, only your half of the stone could line up perfectly with the other half of the stone of your friend. And my friends, you have one and only one with whom you are perfectly matched and designed to belong to. We spend so much energy looking for the next thing that will make us happy. And in our sin, we waste so much time compromising and settling for so little. And we spend so much energy and worry living up to the standards of the people around us or for that matter, to our own standards for ourselves. You have one and only one who has given you his name that you might belong to him forever. And these, my friends, in the midst of good news and bad news, these gifts are the gifts that he gives to you today. It's normally at this point where I would say amen. I mean, if Jesus is taking care of our past and our present, he's given us a glorious future in him forever. Let me ask you, just simply before we close, what may Jesus be calling you to as you hear these words today? You know, Ephesians, rekindling our first love and Smyrna, living more sacrificially. But what about here in this letter to Pergamum? If you look closely, these gifts that Jesus gives, there's a bit of a, a condition, a clause here. Jesus says, to the one who overcomes, I will give these things, the hidden manna and the white stone, to the one who overcomes. If only life was like that every single day. You know, the good, victorious Christian life that we all have, right? You know, how are you doing today? You look good, uh, by the way. And uh, I'm doing good. How are you? Isn't that what we're supposed to do when we come to church like this, to put our best self on in front of the people around us? Maybe Sunday morning, we're trying our best to look good to the people around us, but let's be honest, most days aren't like that. Paying bills, running errands, kids going to school for the fall and coming back on quarantine. That happened to me twice this week. That's autobiographical. <laughs> Two kids. You know, most days, we're trying our best just to keep it together. To the one who overcomes may seem, if we're honest with ourselves, a bit out of our reach. News stresses us out. What about masks? What do we do? Overcome? My friends, Jesus says, I'm the one who's overcome. And it's my victory, and I give it to you. And I earned it by losing it. I crucified in weakness on the cross and raised from the tomb in glory. He is risen to give you a glorious future in him forever so that you can rest not in your victory, not in being an overcomer, but being in the one who rests in their weakness and their brokenness because he says, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Maybe for you today, we look at the words of Pergamon, maybe it's not simply to be the kind of person who has it all together, but to be okay with the kind of person who doesn't.
because you have one who is crucified, who is raised, who has forgiven your past, who provides for your present, and has given you a glorious future in him forever. Jesus Christ, who reigns and rules over all things and in your life and in mine today. In the name of Jesus, amen.